You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. You guys, over the course of the last few years, there's been a collection of archaeologists all over the world who have stumbled upon an ancient form of communication that they believe was remarkably advanced in its time. It had the power to carry messages in a way nothing else has carried messages before, and that ancient technology radically changed the landscape of the world. I've actually got an image of that ancient technology I wanted to share with you guys here uh, in our slide deck. Yeah, there it is. You guys familiar (laughs) with this, uh, this ancient form of communication, VHS tapes? You guys remember these? Yeah? Plugging these things in, you could like fill up a whole room because they were kind of bulky and unwieldy if you had a collection of them. They had those like soft plastic covers, you remember those? Or the paper slides that they went in? Oh yeah, movie posters plastered on them. And those of you that remember the single VHS tapes, do you remember the double VHS tapes? Remember those bad boys for the really long movies? Like uh, Titanic, right? You couldn't watch Titanic without two massive VHS tapes. Those double tapes, they were reserved for only the most epic of stories. Double tapes were only reserved for the biggest tales, like Ben-Hur, Gone with the Wind, Lawrence of Arabia, The Godfather. All the most expansive and powerful tales were told in this two-part system because there was too much to say on one VHS. And if you had the first tape, then you'd be left with an incomplete movie. If you didn't have the second tape, you'd miss much of the story if you only had the first one. And there's actually something similar happening in our New Testament. See, for most of us, the story that gets the greatest amount of publicity, and rightly so, is the story of the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, right? It's one that most of us are familiar with. Even if we don't know all the details, we have big cultural moments like Christmas or Easter that remind us of bits of that story, like Jesus' birth or resurrection. But the truth that we don't often realize is that those stories are only part of the first VHS tape. Christmas is the opening scene on that first tape. And Easter, the day we celebrated last week with a big old party here at Midtown, that's the end of the first tape. Yet so often, especially after Easter, we take part one of the Jesus VHS out of the player and we think, oh, what a great story. And then we put it back on the shelf and it collects dust and we don't really do anything about it. It just continues to lead us into our nice, comfortable lives until the next Easter comes down and we plug it back in and run the whole series over. But friends, the story keeps going after Easter in the Bible. That's the remarkable thing about resurrection. It keeps on living by its nature. So after Easter, our response shouldn't be, oh man, what a great story, and then putting the VHS back on the shelf. Our response should be, what's next? What's next after the resurrection? And that's why we're titling this teaching series here at Midtown, What's Next? Over the course of the next 12 weeks, we're remembering that the resurrection isn't the end of the story. It's actually the beginning of the revolution of God in the world. And we hear about that revolution. It's depicted in stunning detail in a book called Acts in our Bibles. Acts is the second VHS tape to this story. It tells of the remarkable and life-changing reality that the kingdom of God, that kingdom that Jesus came to bring, kingdom of peace and justice and forgiveness and restoration for all people everywhere, that that kingdom is active right now because of the resurrection, and it's on the move in our world. And so Acts, this book that we're going to read, it isn't just a nostalgic reflection on the good old days of church, like we sometimes want to read. And it's not just a historical accounting of a new religious sect. Acts is the reporting of the cosmic story of God and humanity partnering together to bring flourishing to the world. That's an amazing, amazing second part 
to the story. We don't want to miss that. And that means that this book is an invitation to each of us to participate in this story, wherever we are in our spiritual journeys. Some of you in this room maybe uh, wouldn't call yourself a Christian or maybe have left Christianity and are kind of coming back around the church and figuring out what it looks like for you. This series is designed for you. This series is made for you to reflect on what it might look like for you to follow God and what he's doing in the world. And you're going to hear story after story, remarkable story after story in this series. You're going to see miracles. You're going to see compelling teaching. You're going to see divisive laws broken down and justice and peace for the vulnerable and marginalized. And every single time you see those things, it's going to be an invitation for you to step into the story of God and what God is doing in the world. But it's not just for the newcomers or the people who are maybe returning after a bit of a hiatus to this Christian thing. It's also for all of us who have been around for a long time. See, this series is designed to help us remember. Very often, we can kind of go through our church lives, our religious lives, and kind of get into a rut or routine. We show up on Sundays, and we do our prayer, and we do our scripture reading, and we do our small group, and we just kind of keep going and going and going, and eventually, we kind of forget why we're doing what we're doing. We kind of lose passion or clarity or, or hope for why we do this whole church thing. And so this series is designed to help all of us who have been doing this Christianity thing for a while, it's designed to help all of us remember that our lives are caught up in that big story of God. That our lives are caught up in a transformative story. All of our minutes and hours and days, they play a crucial role in God's eternal transformation of all things. So, regardless of where you are in your journey in this room right now, consider this morning and the next 11 weeks to be invitations to you every week. An invitation for you to say, what's next for me? What's next in the world around me? With me? All right, let's dive in, you guys. I'm excited to begin our journey in Acts chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, you can flip there. We're going to be in the fifth book in your New Testament. That's uh, the order of the books. Uh, Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 1. We're going to read through verse 11, if you'd like to follow along. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, by the way, that's okay. The words are going to be behind me on the screen, so you can follow along there. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait For the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus, who's been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way You've seen him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it doesn't take long for us to realize that this is a part two, right? 
It's in the very first words, right? In the first book, Theophilus is how Acts begins. What does the first book imply? That there's a second book, right? Quick math lesson, two comes after one. You guys know this, right? This is the second book in the order here. The VHS set is actually still together in our Bibles as well. This two-part story is actually uh, in our hands every time we carry a Bible. See, there's another book in our New Testament that was addressed to a guy named Theophilus. It's the Gospel of Luke. The author of that book was a first-century physician named Luke, and he wrote a, a biography of sort of the life and times of Jesus. And he opened that book by addressing Theophilus. He said this to Theophilus, I too decided, after investigating everything carefully from the first, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth. So Luke and Acts, they're written by the same person, for the same person, telling one cohesive story. We split them up in our Bibles, and that's because the story is so big and so grand that, well, it's helpful to split it up for us. But the reality is it's telling one tale. Some historians think that Luke actually ran into a similar technology problem in his day to our VHS problem, where scrolls weren't big enough or long enough to tell these stories, so he had to split it up into two scrolls. And from the outset of this two-part story, you can tell he's a doctor right away, right? The language he's using, he's saying that he's investigating things. He's writing an orderly account. He is set on examining the data as comprehensively as possible and then reliably communicating that data to his audience in a well-researched and insightful sort of way. Sounds very, very educated and proper. And that's actually the sort of organized style of writing that we see in Acts as well. There's a scholar named Steve Reese who talks about this. He wrote a journal article last year. He points out that Luke's writings indicate he was highly educated. He constantly references or alludes to noteworthy Jewish or Greek or other philosophers of his day. And his chosen audience speaks to this as well. Most historians think that Theophilus, this person he's addressing this book to, was someone who was well-educated. He was an esteemed member of a class of thinking and rational Romans, many people think. He's kind of the ancient equivalent of someone today who would read like literary journals or scientific studies. And so Luke set out to write these books in such a way that even intelligent and thinking people would be able to respect them and understand them and maybe even embrace them. He's trying as best as possible to write as an investigative journalist might. And by the way, that doesn't mean that Luke is snooty or pretentious in how he writes either. His books are page turners. Amazing story after amazing story happens. He's not writing this so that it's inaccessible. He's just simply writing so that even the highest class of people could look, highest educated people could look and see, man, there's something compelling about this story. See, for Luke, the story of the life of Jesus isn't the stuff of legend. It's not for the gullible or the stupid. It isn't exaggerated mythology that's multiple generations removed from the source. It's an attempt at reporting real experiences, real stories from real people on the ground who you can go and talk to. That was his goal, to interview people who had real experiences with the risen Jesus. And he's continuing that work in part two with this story. This is a story that Christians historically have referred to as the ascension of Jesus, where he rises to heaven. And it's in this story that the revolution of the kingdom of God is sparked. This is where the second VHS tape is plugged in for us. And here, in this passage, Jesus' followers are told three things about what the ascension of Jesus sparks in the world. Three things. First, the ascension of Jesus ignites Christ's presence, not his absence. It also ignites the expansiveness of the kingdom, not its division. And it ignites witnesses, not admirers. First, 
It ignites Christ's presence, not his absence. Notice right away at the start of Acts, in one short sentence, he summarizes what his first book was about. He said, my first book was about what Jesus began to do and to teach. And at first glance, it can be really easy for us to think, well, that first book, so that's about Jesus. And now the second book, well, is about the church and its followers. That's how many people have tended to read Acts over the years. Some people have nicknamed it the Acts of the Apostles. We think that Jesus did his thing in part one, and now the church is doing their thing in part two. But look more closely at that sentence. He doesn't say that the first book was about what Jesus did and taught, past tense. He says it was about what Jesus began to do and to teach. The implication is that this thing began and continues, that Jesus is actually still doing and teaching in the book of Acts all over the place. Jesus is the main character in Acts, not the apostles. The apostles are around, for sure. But Jesus is the one who is moving. His presence is all over these pages. His fingerprints are all over the stories. He's the primary actor here. Luke has announced Jesus as king and lord, not as an increasingly distant and inspirational character for us to kind of will ourselves to be like. That's not the goal. The goal of Acts is to say that Jesus is active and moving and living all around us all the time right now. In Acts, over the course of these next few weeks, you're going to see Jesus as a person who can be known and loved, who can be obeyed and followed, who continues to act in the real world. So a better nickname for this book would be Acts of Jesus Part 2, Through the Church. And at first glance in this story, that seems kind of counterintuitive. It's hard for us to imagine, like, well, how... Is this the Acts of Jesus part two if he leaves in verse nine, right? He's out of here. It seems like to us he's ditching the disciples. In fact, I grew up in the church and I often thought that, like, why did Jesus leave? Like, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. If Jesus wants to be present with us, why does he ascend? It seems like he's ditched his followers. And that's because our picture of the ascension is often rooted in some unhelpful assumptions that Luke isn't getting at here. See, in our mind's eye, we think that Jesus' ascension means he's floated off somewhere into distant space, right? He's like the first century Jewish astronaut. And he's just really far away out there somewhere, but he's in our cosmos somewhere. But that's not what Luke is getting at here. Luke is actually telling us that Jesus' ascension means he's more present than he ever was before. Luke seems to think that Jesus' presence is actually sparked here in radical ways that it wasn't before. So how? How does his leaving actually prompt him to arrive? It seems counterintuitive to us, right? Well, we have to be clear on what the ascension isn't. It's not space travel. We often picture Jesus ascending to heaven in that way. And there's actually uh, oftentimes some unhelpful ways that we view our lives in Jesus because of that. We are waiting and feel like, well, Jesus, man, he's so far away from me now. He's ascended to heaven, and I don't even know what heaven's like. Like, how do I understand his presence near to me? This has been assumed by many of us. There's actually a, a famous quote from a guy uh, who was launched into space, his first, uh, first human launched into space. His name was Yuri Gagarin. You may remember this quote or have read it somewhere. He said, I looked and looked and looked, but I didn't see heaven or God up there. But Yuri and many of us misunderstand where God lives and what heaven really is. See, according to the Bible, God doesn't live in the skies or in the space or the universe of the way that we conceive of the cosmos. God's not contained within temporal time and space reality as we perceive of it. And God does not relate to humanity in that way. He doesn't relate to humanity in a way that somebody sits in the attic and speaks down to someone on the first floor. God, instead, all of the scripture relates to humanity sort of the way that Shakespeare might relate to the characters in his plays. 
There's a great author named C.S. Lewis who talked about this analogy. See, in Shakespeare's plays, he creates an entire world, and he interacts freely with that world, right? Shakespeare can move in and out of his stories as he wills, because he's above those stories. And when we talk about Jesus ascending to heaven, we don't mean that he's now a character in the play who has moved to a different part of the stage. What we mean is that he has ascended to the realm of author. That's the root of the word authority, that Jesus has real authority now. Because he's ascended, he's now holding the pen to the play. And he has the power to take everything he was and everything he did and all of his character and bring it into the cosmos wherever and whenever he pleases. That's actually what he means when he talks about the baptism of the Holy Spirit here. The Holy Spirit is the way that Jesus actually works his character and life into all parts of the cosmos. He says that you are going to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. He's saying because of his ascension, people in all times and all places can be immersed and filled and surrounded by the life-giving presence of Jesus, God. All of the truth of Jesus' character and life, his love, his grace, his healing power, all of those aspects of his character can now be experienced everywhere, all over the place. He's not limited by a physical body. His presence can be known and experienced and heard and seen and felt anywhere at any time. That's the radical news of the ascension. That's the way that Jesus ascends and leaves and is actually able to be more present with us now because he's not limited by a physical body. This is actually why he speaks to Mary Magdalene after the resurrection the way he does. Some of you might remember this story. Mary Magdalene shows up to the tomb to anoint Jesus' what she thinks dead body with uh, spices. That was a common burial practice at that time. She's going to grieve and to mourn, and she comes and sees the stone rolled away. And the body's gone. And she immediately thinks, well, somebody has stolen his body. She doesn't think resurrection. So she's crying, she's mourning, she's grieving, and then Jesus appears in front of her. She doesn't recognize him right away, but then he says her name, and she does recognize and in that story, she tries to grasp on to Jesus. She tries to touch him and hold him. And Jesus says, Mary, don't touch me and hold me. Which is weird, because other times in the New Testament, he actually invites the disciples to touch him. He wants them to see that it's a physical body. So why would he tell Mary not to touch him and hold him? Well, because Mary doesn't quite understand that Jesus' ascension is going to mean that she can have him whenever and wherever she wants. She's not limited by holding on to his physical body. In that passage, he's saying, Mary, you don't understand you're afraid you're going to lose me again. So you don't want to let me go. But he says, if you let me go, if you let me ascend now, you'll never be able to lose me again. Because then I will have transcended time and space and be with you wherever you go. If you let me ascend, they'll never be able to take me from you again. That's the power of the ascension. That No one can take Jesus' presence from any of us. They can lock you away. They can put bars on the doors, but they can't stop Jesus' presence from being with us. That's the powerful nature of the ascension. He's not limited by his body in the same way. There's a scholar named Lloyd John Ogilvie who talks about this in his commentary on the book of Acts called Drumbeat of Love. He says he had to leave them in one dimension to return in a greater demonstration of power. He left as Jesus of Nazareth, resurrected and victorious. He returned as the Holy Spirit, indwelling and found everywhere. And that gift of the Holy Spirit, friends, is of tremendous power, Jesus says. You're going to be given power when the Holy Spirit descends upon you. The Holy Spirit has the power of wisdom and knowledge for our minds. It has the power of faith and courage for us to step boldly into the world. It has the power of strength and endurance for us to push beyond what we on our own could accomplish or do. The Spirit of the Lord has remarkable 
power in our lives. And so Jesus' ascension, it means his presence with us, not absence from us. He hasn't put on his astronaut suit and left us. He's actually more present now than he ever could have been in his physical body before. It means that in all areas of our lives, the presence of Jesus can be known and experienced through the Holy Spirit. That's the first thing, that the ascension ignites in the world. Jesus' presence, not his absence. And then, what we continue to learn in this passage is that that presence, the presence of the Holy Spirit, causes radical expansion into the world. Not division, but expansion. Notice, Jesus says, once the Holy Spirit's power has come upon you, he says he's going to send them to places. You notice the locations that were mentioned here? He says they're going to send them to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that is one remarkably expansive list. Here's what that would have sounded like to the disciples. Okay, Jerusalem. All right, so that's the place that all our sworn enemies are, and they just murdered our leader. And Jesus says, yeah, you're going to go there. And then Judea, well, that's the place where Jesus and his followers were rejected. Oh, yeah, you're going to go there, too. And then Samaria, oh, yeah, those are those religious half-breeds, the heretics of the day. He's like, yeah, you're going to go there, too. And then the ends of the earth, that includes all the unclean Gentile sinners. Yeah, you're going to go there, too. That's what the disciples are thinking here. Jesus is telling them that they are going to go well beyond what their expectations were. The book of Acts, chapter after chapter, sends the disciples into places that they would never go themselves places that they would never think they could go. This list remarkably includes every possible category of person because the Holy Spirit, when it arrives, tears down the dividing walls of our world. It welcomes even the enemies, even the ones who have rejected us, even those we disagree with, even the religious outsiders. There's no one that the Christian is not called to love and to invite to participate in the kingdom. No person there's a Swiss theologian named Jean Millich Lockman who says that Jesus' journey to heaven becomes the disciples' journey to the ends of the earth. His journey to heaven becomes our journey to the end of the earth. The whole point of this story is to prompt Jesus' followers to be people who break down dividing walls in the world with the proclamation of King Jesus. There's no one that's not welcomed, no one that's not invited to participate in this story. And this expansive list has two crucial implications for us today. First, it prompts us beyond our own divisions towards others. Many of us like to think, especially in our culture, it's common to think, oh, we're just really inclusive and we care for people. All of us have divisions, friends. People that we really don't want to invest time in. People we don't really want to love. So often we categorize people based on whether we think they're worthy or not worthy of our time or our energy or our love. But the expansive kingdom of God that comes through the Holy Spirit Tells us, there's, tells us that there's no one who's disqualified from receiving love. No one. Justo Gonzalez puts it this way. He's a Christian scholar. He says, Christians themselves are discovering by means of the Spirit that the reign of God is much wider than they themselves thought or expected. Much more expansive than they thought or expected. And the rest of the book of Acts reveals that remarkable expansion. By the time you get to Acts chapter 13, which we're going to get there over the next few weeks, you see African Christians... Asian Christians, Greek Christians, Roman Christians, Jewish Christians, slave Christians, free Christians, rich Christians, poor Christians, disabled Christians, they're all together. All of those dividing walls in the world were broken down by Christ's self-giving love. And all of those people are welcomed to follow Jesus. This is an inclusivity and a diversity that is not only unheard of in the ancient world, but it was also really dangerous. The Spirit of God puts an end to the petty and abusive ways that we divide ourselves from one another. 
Whenever the Spirit of God shows up, it threatens the power structures in our world that divide us from each other by the radical claim that all people and all classes and all skin pigments are all welcome in the kingdom. Which means Christ's love prompts us to move beyond the divisions in our own hearts. It prompts us to move beyond our political divisions, which is a huge deal in our world. It prompts us to move beyond the moral divisions, the way that we divide people based on their behavior. It prompts us to move beyond preference divisions, people we just really like spending time with. That's a big one for all of us, right? I, I just don't really like spending time with that person. It doesn't matter. <laughs> all people are welcomed, and we are called to the ends of the earth. The Christian is called to proclaim the kingdom of Christ's love and grace beyond the farthest reaches of their own divisive hearts. And so we should become the sort of people who ask, who are the people that I'm determined not to love? Who are the people that I really have a tough time loving? Who are the people that I harbor division with? And where is Christ maybe leading me beyond those divisions by his Holy Spirit to love people really, really well, even when we don't want to? So that's the first implication of this expansive list. It prompts us to move beyond our divisions, but it also prompts us to move out of our comfort zones. That's the second thing. See, the expansiveness of Christ's message will often lead us to places that surprise us. We aren't people who live simply in little bubbles. We love to do that as Christians. We love to create a nice little bubble where we're nice and comfortable, but that's exactly the opposite of what this looks like. Jesus says to these disciples, you're not going to live in a bubble. You're going to move to places that you are not familiar with, to people you're not familiar with, who probably don't like you very much. You're not going to live an easy, comfortable life because the kingdom of God is expanding us beyond our comfort. There's a, a famous minister named Greg Boyle whose life illustrates this really well. Back in the 1980s, uh, he had just finished up his theological training in Southern California. And he was about to be appointed a pastor of a particular parish. And he requested to his commissioning board, you can send me anywhere, just don't send me to East L.A. Send me anywhere, just not to East L.A. I'm fine with anywhere else. And at the time, East L.A. was the poorest parish in the entire country. Father, we pray for our first responders and the folks that they're responding to right now, our neighbors. We pray that you would give them wisdom and protect uh, the lives of those who are in the middle of an emergency right now. Thank you for first responders and the gifts you've given them. Amen. So Greg Boyle, he said, don't send me to East L.A. It's the poorest parish of the time. It's between two rival gangs, violent rival gangs. And so the, his commissioning committee said, okay, so you're going to go to East L.A., they sent him right to the place that he didn't want to go. And over the next few decades, Greg Boyle developed a ministry. It's called Homeboy Industries. And it is now the largest gang member rehabilitation and re-entry program in the entire world. He went right to the place that he was uncomfortable with. He was commissioned to go there. And look what the Holy Spirit did through him. That's exactly what God is calling all of us to be and to do, friends. To be people who go out of our comfort zone to love and serve our neighbors, to proclaim this kingdom to the ends of the earth. Go beyond your divisions. Go beyond your comfort zones. And finally, when we're there, when we're in those spaces, when we're guided by the presence of Jesus and the Holy Spirit around us, we have a particular role. That's the third thing that the ascension ignites in us. It ignites our role as witnesses, not as admirers. We are witnesses to King Jesus, not just admirers. Did you notice at the end of our passage today, the initial response of the disciples after Jesus ascended? They just keep staring up, looking in the sky. 
Like, that was amazing. Right? They're overcome by the spectacle of Jesus' ascension. And they're stuck. They're marveling at the majesty and wonder of Jesus, and well, that's an easy trap that all of us can fall into. To get stuck in the majesty and wonder, to get stuck in emotionally resonant experiences that actually prevent us from going out into the world. Christian culture loves to do this. We love focusing our time and energy on building beautiful buildings and spending a lot of our time in those places. We love putting on impressive spectacles and productions that commemorate Jesus, that admire Jesus really well. We've built a culture of great admirers of Jesus who can spiritualize the story for a few weeks and then keep moving on with their comfortable lives. But the entire purpose of the ascension here was to get the disciples out into the world You're not admirers who come and gather for just some religious things every once in a while. You are witnesses that go to the ends of the earth. And this is revealing to us a a two-part nature to the Christian life. Being with Jesus, friends, really, really important. They spent 40 days with the risen Jesus, learning from him. They immersed themselves in his presence. But that immersion didn't just stay with them and for them. See, if we get caught up in the being with Jesus part of the Christian story, we're going to become a siloed church, and we're going to neglect our neighbors in some way. But if we only get caught up in the doing part, if we only are people who say, well, I don't really need to be with Jesus, I just need to do what Jesus did, then we're going to fail to have a vision for God's kingdom that is informed by Jesus himself. Eventually, we're going to get tired. Eventually, we're going to look around the world and say, this is pointless and hopeless, I'm trying to do this all on my own, and every time I take two steps forward, I take three steps back in loving my neighbor. We need the hope of Jesus' ultimate kingdom to move us in that way. We need to be and to do. That's a two-part description of the Christian life. And that's why, at the end of their staring up at the sky, right, the, the two angels show up and suddenly call them out. Like, hey, men of Galilee, Why are you just standing there looking up at the sky? Why are you just standing there, obsessed with the spectacle of this whole thing? Why are you consumed by all this? Remember what Jesus said. He told you to go. He told you that you'd be witnesses and that your lives would be given to the proclamation of his reign. And that word, witnesses, it comes from the Greek word martus. Uh, It's actually where we get our English word martyr. Familiar with martyrs. They're people who die for the cause. And so a witness is a person who carries the cross-shaped, sacrificial love of Jesus into everything they do. They're people who give their lives away for the sake of the love and the grace and the peace and the justice of the kingdom. That's what we are called to be. And it happens for us in two main ways. We see both of these all over the book of Acts. First, we become witnesses in our speech. People are witnesses when they carry the history of their life with Jesus through their word. Christians should be master storytellers. We should be people who proclaim the ways that Jesus' story and presence has radically transformed us and is continuing to transform us. We speak those words. And Jesus wanted this to be unequivocally clear to us. So during his ministry, he actually said some pretty wild things about our role as his followers. In the Gospel of Matthew, he said this, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist, yet the least in the kingdom of heaven, is greater than him. You see what he's saying? Even the worst of us, even the most broken and the most flawed and most inarticulate Christians have the capacity for more than even one of the greatest prophets. 
Why? Because the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit starts to work through our speech in radical and powerful ways because the living God is at work in us and through us. And the Bible is really, really clear on hammering this notion home. that The living God works through our speech all over the Bible. For instance, Paul, in the book of Ephesians, he talks about how the Christians he's writing to in Asia Minor came to know Jesus. In chapter 2, he says this. So he, he's talking about Christ, so he came and proclaimed peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. Now, dig a little bit into his language. Notice, he doesn't say Christians proclaimed about the peace of Jesus to you. He says Jesus himself proclaimed peace to you. And then he keeps going on in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, you have heard him and been taught in him. Again, that's really weird phrasing. He doesn't say that you've heard of Jesus from Christians. He said you've heard Jesus himself, the living, risen Jesus. And that's really weird because Paul is writing these words to Christians in Ephesus and Asia Minor where Jesus never physically went. How could they hear Jesus? How did Jesus preach directly to them if he wasn't physically there? Because Christians, when they proclaim who Jesus is, the risen Jesus actually speaks through them, actually works through them. It's not just us talking about some inspirational story. It is us embodying Jesus to others so that he, in his risenness, can communicate himself to them. Jesus proclaims himself through our speech. You guys, if you're a Christian and you speak about what Jesus has done in your life to someone else, the Bible minces no words. They can hear the voice of the living Jesus through you. They can experience the risen Jesus through you. This isn't just a compelling set of texts that we read, and it's not just a nice narrative. The risen Jesus is at work every time we proclaim what he's done in our lives. And he can powerfully move through you to your neighbors. He does. The book of Acts reminds us of that. So witnessing happens in our speech, the way that we speak about what Jesus has done, but it also happens in our action. See, the witness of Jesus is someone who lives differently in the world. There are people who live with Christ as their king and no other. There are people whose lives are oriented around different sorts of priorities than the rest of the world. There are people who illustrate the rule and reign of Jesus by saying that Jesus rules and reigns in my own behavior. And so for the witness of Jesus, financial decisions aren't just determined by the market. They're determined by the priorities of Christ's kingdom. For the witness, relationships aren't determined by what uh, is the norm in the culture. It's determined by what Christ says it looks like to love your neighbor. These are people who forgive their enemy in a world of resentment. They're people who practice radical generosity in a world of hoarding. They're people who give up their power in order to serve. Their behavior is radically changed because they believe that Jesus rules and that nothing else rules in their life. And in the book of Acts, when the community of disciples actually practice that, it leads to the kingdom of God being extended to the ends of the earth. It actually leads to what Jesus promised. That's weird, right? Jesus said, do this, they do it, and it happens. Remarkable. How simple that is. The outsiders become insiders. The lowly are elevated. The dividing walls are broken down. And the brokenness of the world is joyfully reversed all over the book of Acts. Even in a world where other people claim to reign, even in a world where other people try to assert their dominance over Christians, the Spirit of God works through them to proclaim this truth, that Jesus Christ reigns. And there is no other kingdom that can trump that kingdom. 
that his rule, his reign has final say. Redemption and restoration have final say. And that sort of witnessing is exactly how Jesus comes to be known in the world. The martyrs, the witnesses, give their lives for the kingdom because they're the ones through whom the kingdom comes. Jesus brings his kingdom through his witnesses. You can even see it a little bit in this text. You notice right away when the disciples are kind of chatting with Jesus, they mention, hey, are you going to bring the kingdom now? And Jesus says, one, not your time to know all the details, but actually the kingdom's going to come through you. They're like, hey, will you bring the kingdom? He's like, no, you will. You will. I, I will bring it through you. You get to be the ones through whom this kingdom comes. And so Jesus seems to see that this new community that's formed from haunted and holy people, that's shaped by the Holy Spirit, is precisely the way that this redemption and restoration happens. Christ only becomes known when his witnesses proclaim him to the world. That's how it works. That's what Jesus set up for us here. There's a great quote that I think summarizes this well from a woman named Teresa of Avila. She says this, Christ has no body but yours. No hands, no feet on earth, but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he looks with compassion on the world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which he blesses the world. Yours are the hands, yours are the feet, yours are the eyes. You are his body. Friends, in Acts 1, the revolution has begun. Christ's ascension shows us in a remarkable way that he is present with us at all times, not absent. It shows in a remarkable way that this kingdom is radically expansive. And it shows us that all of us are invited to participate in it as witnesses, as people who change their speech and their action because of the rule of Jesus. And so Jesus is putting this all in front of us right here, now. He's saying, it's time for you, church, after the resurrection. Don't let that VHS tape collect dust. Put the next one in. He's asking what each of us are going to do about it in our own lives. He's asking us one short and profound question. What's next for you and for me? Let's pray. Let's pray.